Now, um, I thought this would be suitable time for questions. Yes? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's confusing. <laughs> because in part in the scripture, consciousness is used in different contexts. So in the five khandas, it's mainly through sense sense consciousness, which is changing, like through eye consciousness, ear. But then consciousness itself is is uh, you know it's an immeasurable, like as an element, like the six elements: the earth, fire, water, air, space, and consciousness. And then there's references to the unestablished consciousness or unconditioned. So like when Buddha was enlightened, he didn't lose consciousness, but he wasn't, but it was the reality of non-attachment to conditions. <clears throat> so it's like in, um, they talk, in Thai they talk about Jitwang or the empty consciousness, or there's the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned uh, you know, these are, this is where your thinking stops, you know. You can imagine, you know, senses, sensory consciousness through senses is, it has always forms and um, shapes, sizes, conditions, colors. But the unconditioned isn't a, like a absence of consciousness, it's where Consciousness and wisdom operate together. So in in the like in the, there's this one like there there is the um, let's see, vinyanang anidasanang anantang sapado pabang. This is a in a diganekaya consciousness uh, unending, deathless splendid and then just in terms of your own experience you know just in, in a in a situation such as now when you let go of everything you don't go unconscious but there's consciousness unestablished on the, on a thing on a condition but it includes conditions it's not a it's not, you know, a, a separate thing from the conditions, but it it embraces conditions rather than than it's just another condition that we let go of. Does that help? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you give me some. <laughs> 
Well, like, like you, you have this play, playing with your mind, for example. Conditioned phenomena you can imagine. You know, you can make it uh, a definite shape, like a chair, a table, a man or woman. You can create that which is known. Or you can have abstract forms, you know, like, you know, go to an art museum where they have all abstract paintings and, and you know, you can, it still has form and shape and limited by frame or, uh, you know, so it's, it's, uh, and you can imagine, you can have fantasies, you can create, created anything born and thought or uh, conditioned. But the, you know, then there's the unborn, uncreated, unformed, uncreated. You can't imagine that. Try to imagine. Create an image of unborn, uncreated. My mind goes blank. My thinking stops. It can't do it. And so then you think it's annihilation. You know, the easy thing is to think of it as, you know, like Nibbana is, you know, one time... Somebody told me nirvana is extinction of everything, and it sounded pretty, uh, you know, horrible actually, like annihilation. And uh, so, but this is where, you know, the thinking mind can go, I can either, you know, the Buddha made it very clear in the first sermon, it's neither eternalism, which is about conditioned phenomena being eternal, uh, or or annihilation is not, uh, you know, getting rid of everything. But it's the middle way, or matima batibata. What can that be if it's not? Because the thinking, the, the logic of thought, will either take you to the, the abstract ideas of eternal life, eternal happiness, uh, beautiful uh, superlatives, eternalism, or it takes you to total extinction. Annihilationism, nihilism. That's that's the limitation of the thinking process. It, it, thinking can't give you perspective on anything. It can elaborate and and uh, or reduce things, but it can't really give you perspective. So that's like mindfulness gives you perspective on conditioned phenomena. And and in. Uh, like space in this room, isn't it? Like if you contemplate space, uh, you know, you know, you don't need to take make us all leave the room and uh, and tear down the hall, and <laughs> because space is here and now, and it's right in front of you, you know, as you can see it, but you may not notice it. You know, you're looking at the monks, at the walls, and so forth. But then when I point it out, it's easy to see, isn't it? You start observing space. And space then gives you perspective on the objects in space. But if you don't have that perspective, then you're always going from one thing to another, you know, and getting caught up in liking this, not liking that. Or same with consciousness. Consciousness, you don't, you know, you can close your eyes, block up your ears, Stop all your sensor activity, but there's still consciousness. And then thinking will come and go. 
and sometimes you you know you're thinking uh, you know about the past or the future or your emotions will still operate but if you're resting in pure conscious awareness then you have perspective on your emotional habits you know what you're feeling happy or sad or on your memories ability to remember or on your fears and desires anxiety about the future you have perspective that means you have you're no longer caught in the momentum of attachment or denial but of observing the arising ceasing of phenomena of conditions and it's very interesting like uh, like uh, so many people want to know why you know the people say why do I get angry why do I have these irrational fears we want to know why why do I have to be like this and when you read the scriptures the Buddha never asked the question why and it's not about why it's the way things are and this makes it much more easy you don't need to know why you feel the way you do or you are the way you are you know, because then you get caught up in thinking about yourself from ignorance and the self-view and judgments and blame and so forth. But if you just have much more confidence in being aware of change, you know, if if you feel you have a pro, some kind of emotional problem, and then you think, why? Why do I have this problem? Then you can go around and around with trying to find answers. Some people will tell you different things. <clears throat> Spend lots of money on psychotherapy or whatever. But if you're really interested in terms of Dhamma, then you, this feeling is like this. And so you're opening to it, receiving it. And you're observing its nature is changing. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not a static, uh, permanent condition. There's no such thing. And as you develop that, trust more in that, then, then these, these, these particular emotional problems or fears and irrational things will, you know, you're letting them go, you're resolving, they're going to their natural state of, um, you know, empty. They, they go, they rise and then they cease, you're letting them cease. And then your true nature is, pure consciousness which is like love it's it's like a it, it's it embraces it's not a judgmental thing it's not a, a kind of an annihilation where you just totally a zombie don't feel anything but when you think of the you know how the word love is used in English it's usually conveyed with liking something or or feeling a romantic uh, attachment to somebody else or whatever but like in metta or in the the, the brahma viharas in in theravada buddhism metta karuna mudita upeka they come from that pure consciousness we don't when we try to create metta out of personal perceptions you know i'm going to spread metta to you all with me ajahn Zamedo. And, and that is, uh, you know, it's it's a wholesome thought and it's good intention, but is that really metta? And then, then you know, you realize these 
these four Brahma Viharas are natural responses to society, to to contingencies in life. When when you're seeing it from pure wisdom and pure consciousness, then we're not indifferent to the suffering of others or or to the beauty of life or anything. We we respond with with like loving kindness or compassion or joy or uh, equanimity. Then it all comes together. You know, the whole thing fits because you know if I'm going to develop Brahma Viharas as a as an ego trip, you can get pretty silly about it sometimes. And then, and then you know you you know you're trying to love everybody when when you don't feel love sometimes. <clears throat> you know you have personal a particular dislike for somebody, and then you feel guilty because you're supposed to love them. It goes gets into a, your brain in a twist, and you're emotionally confused. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, it's it's more learning to operate from a different level of, uh, you know, rather than operating from perception, you're operating from wisdom. Like, uh, we, you know, like uh, the United States is based on ideals. It's an idealistic society. <clears throat> so, you know, we can create ideals with our thinking mind, you can create perfection, ideals of perfection. You know about the perfect democratic society where every where there's justice and compassion and freedom, where there's equality and uh, fairness in everything. We can create with our mind an ideal of perfection, but uh, the reality of this moment is like this: it's not an ideal. You know, so, and we do this to ourselves. We know how we should be. How, you know, an ideal monk should be. An ideal mother or father or president or whatever. You know, we can create ideals of perfection. And and then we, then if we don't know what we're doing, then we tend to judge everything from the this these superlative positions and we're never going to be able to live that way. Life is not an ideal, you know. Ideals don't feel anything. Ideals don't have nerve endings. They don't have blood in they don't have veins or blood. You know, like the Buddha Rupa here is an ideal. And it doesn't you know, whatever happens in front of it, it doesn't get upset if you throw mud at it or, you know, it, it doesn't, because it doesn't feel anything. It's an ideal form and it's an icon. But it's, but it's not the reality of this moment. It's feeling. Like what you're experiencing right now is you're feeling this. It's like this. And uh, and we aren't always going to feel the way we we ideally would like to. But we can just observe the way it is now, and that's all you need to know. It's, it's uh, all conditions are impermanent, and so like this constant pointing at condition phenomena 
is changed rather than how things should be. We do need ideals, like, you know, ideals are, are like beautiful, like stars in the sky, they give direction. You know, but if you always got your head looking up at the star, you're going to f- fall off the cliff. You know, you're going to break your legs. <laughs> so, yeah, you need the direction, you need a guiding star, but you also need to know where you're at right now. You know, what, what the ne- what's in front of you. Which isn't ideal. It might be a swamp or a hornet's nest. <laughs> you find, like, sometimes you're so self-critical because you know how you should be, and and then you can never be that good. And I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> I know how I should be all the time, but, you know, I, I can't really be good to that level all the time because of the changing conditions, the tiredness, hunger, thirst, sickness, hot and cold, praise and blame, success and failure. These things are affecting us. That's one thing that was so so powerful about Lumpur Char was he was he wasn't trying to act like Ajahn Man or a perfect monk or the Buddha. He was real. You know, he felt life and he he, he you know, he was a human being who who you could identify with. He wasn't a Buddha Rupa. But he, you know, and, and he was fully human, but he was also wise. You know, he developed the wisdom faculty. And so that's what inspired me, you know, to see it actually in front of my eyes, somebody that actually could do it, you know, is and very encouraging. Because we can idolize Buddhism and Buddhist meditation and all that, and, and we'll never live up to those ideals. It'll never work for us, you know, and we'll become disappointed. We're thinking we're not good enough or we don't have enough barami or it's somebody else's fault. I never met the right teacher or this and that, you know, or I'm not ready. I've got too much anger. (laughs) And we can go on and on like that, thinking about ourselves. But uh, when you're living with a somebody like Lumpur Char, you know, he's not ideal. He's not perfect in the sense of he does everything right, but he's he uses wisdom with the flow of his life. And and because of that, you know, that's why we're here, most of us. Because of that seeing that that in another human being you know, it wasn't just reading about Mahatma Gandhi and thinking, well, he, he's not like me, you know. In fact, like with Lumpur Char, I thought, at first, you know, I admired him. I thought, well, he's, you know, he's enlightened. And he never had the problems I do. You know, so, you know, he doesn't, you know, he's Thai, born in 
in Ethan, and he probably never had the problems I have. And so I idolized Ajahn Chah. And then as you got to know him, you realize he had to go through all kinds of experiences, you know, of greed and anger and frustration and so forth. It didn't get out of anything. He just developed wisdom around it. And then that, that gives, you know, gave me the incentive to, uh, it's possible for me to do the same because I began to stop idolizing him and listening to more of what he was actually pointing at. You know, at first I was just looking at him, you know, he's the master, I'm the ignorant disciple. And that worked, but he would never permit that to he never wanted me to sustain that relationship of worship him and always be the 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 disciple to his master he's always pointing at my getting me to encourage me to look at what i'm actually doing in the present what i'm feeling Any more questions? <laughs> I'm interested in the relationship between the condition and the unconditioned. I'd like to be able to understand it better. It seems from what I've read that there is a dependent, mutually dependent kind of relationship because the Unconditioned, in a sense, it depends upon the condition because it gives, it provides an object in order for for the subject to leave something to focus on. Yeah, well, this is uh, this is. One of my main interests, actually. <laughs> because I, I would like that. I, in fact, Amravati, I had them chanting this before I left, you know, for several years. It is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And if there was not the born, if there was not the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, there'd be no escape from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. So uh, I found this a, really a brilliant reflection and uh, and then uh, then like the born the created the form the condition is all about the you know the phenomena it's all phenomena and then the unborn uncreated unformed unconditioned uh, is more like noumena so you you have uh, you know your relationship to phenomena then isn't isn't separate. It's it, it's a whole. It's a oneness. It's it's not not one is better than the other, or uh, in fact they they are they're they're it's complete in itself. And this is where uh, definition doesn't work anymore. It has to be insight, and and because you can't you can't imagine the unborn uncreated. You just, your thinking mind can't create an image of it. 
You know, you can make a symbol like a zero or something, or a black hole, paint a black hole on a white canvas, and, but that's not it either. So it's, it's uh, but just exploring consciousness, you know, like thinking takes you to that point where you can create forms. You can create, uh, you can, when you get to the, the unborn, uncreated, you can't create anything. The thinking process will stop there. You can't think beyond that. And that's the point where you begin to recognize the consciousness without thought. Empty consciousness. It's like this. It's the, the gap between words. It's the, the, where the, what, what all phenomena arises from and ceases. And so, but it's not a, a kind of, you know, it's, it's, you can't describe consciousness, but you can know it because you are conscious. It's the reality of now. But, and then the best you can say is it's, it's intelligent. It's not like when, when your mind, when your consciousness is empty and there's no attachment, that you're kind of in a dull stupor. Or you're, you know, you're a zombie, or you're, you're no longer alive. You're fully alive, you know. There's, there's, but everything belongs in that, in that purity of consciousness, whether it's a good condition or a bad one. Well, when you hold the idea of becoming aware, you, you, you've lost it. You just have to be aware. <laughs> it's immediate, here and now, you know. It's, it's not something that... <laughs> like it, I mean, we can, like, unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, are just negations of the, of the, you know, the created, the born, the form. So, but that, and then we think it, they become more like abstractions for us, intellectual abstractions. But that's just playing games with the mind again. So, it has to be here and now. This is all, this is where experience is right now. You know, in your whole life, whatever's happened, you know, is memory now. From you know what's happened to you previously, but and you might remember something now, and then the future. There's no future, but you can plan for a future. But you're planning always now, so you're you're, you're establishing this this timeless awareness, and, and and experience is always now. So your relationship to experience is is knowing all conditions are important rather than in trying to become more aware or more wise or more mindful. These are ideas we might create. They're not wrong, but they are 
what they are, their phenomena changing. And that's why, you know, it's a, it's just no trusting this awareness now is like this. And then, you know, it's, when you think about it, you, you get lost again. You have to do it. Well, you know, you're thinking about it right now. Just trust awareness now. And, and get to love the awareness now. And even if you don't remember it for the next two days, when you get caught up in worldly thoughts, you do know exactly what it is now. And trust that again. And the more you trust that, the more, the stronger, the, the foundation, you know, it's because it's always present, the stronger that is. And, and you're no longer, you know, deluded about, you've got to do something to get something and get more of this and less of that. And the thinking mind will always, you know, carry you away into... I'm not very mindful and I've got to be more mindful that kind of thinking again don't make a problem about it when you're not mindful at that point where you suddenly realize and bow to that you know that's but don't go into a self-criticism about how heedless you've been just stop that and and trust in awareness now. There's a waste of time to go around, oh, I lost it again. <laughs> I've seen, you know, in England, you know, because they meet people who've been practicing meditation techniques for, you know, one man with 20 years he's been doing this Mahati Thayadal practice Burmese meditation and a very, you know, very good person and disciplined and and no doubt dedicated and and one day he came to me and he said, Ajah Tomato, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years and I haven't gotten anywhere <laughs> <laughs> and so then what have you been doing and he you know he's following this method and uh, and he's expecting to get something from it but he's not seeing that is he? he he's got this idea that if he keeps doing this method it will take him somewhere you know to enlightenment or insight or something. he's not actually observing that he that he thinks this method uh, you know, the, his own attachment to this method will do it. Uh, it's not that the method is wrong, but it, it's this basic delusion he had around it. If I keep doing this over and over, I'll get enlightened, kind of trust. But it wasn't, you know, he developed maybe virtuous qualities and varamitas, but not wisdom. It's a sense of despair that he couldn't 
didn't have any insight. And, and so what I'm pointing to is methods are, you know, that all methods really can be helpful if we have the right attitude towards them. But if we're attached to a method and think the method itself will make us enlightened, we need to recognize that that's an attachment to a phenomenon, you know, a condition that that we're, we believe in and attach to. And just knowing that, then you let go, doesn't mean you you don't use the method, but also maybe you don't need the method. You know, it's, it's more you're finding your direction within yourself rather than hoping that something out there will keep you going on the path to enlightenment. Because we're going against the whole momentum of our conditioning. You know, it's a, what we consider real, real, real world. And and the way we've been programmed to think and feel about ourselves and the world around us. It's, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's really, a, a, you know, totally the opposite. You know, so, so we have, like we're, like we're from maybe a very idealistic, society you know and we've got all these ideals we want to be good we want to uh, be happy we want to have uh, you know we want to be loved and appreciated and respected and all that and so and then we we try to and when we don't get what these things these ideals then we feel cynical or get bitter in life and take to drink or something or other to just get out of uh, our disappointment or despair. But with this, this way, with mindfulness, then uh, we, we, we can put into right perspective ideals and, how, and thinking, the thinking process, uh, morality. All these things are a part of it, but they're not, you know, but they're, they're in perspective. They're they're helping us rather than things we cling to and identify with. This is brilliant, you know, if you, like that Four Noble Truths teaching. Because <laughs> he takes just the most banal, ordinary unimportant, you know, just like my anxiety about tomorrow and making it into a noble truth, you know, so it is, you know, you say, I want something more, you know, it's got to be more like higher, better, like eternal love or or happiness in, in heaven and those are inspiring, you know, they inspire your mind, you know, but uh, you know, like uh, that, those kind of words, the superlatives and love and all that inspires our thinking mind. We feel inspired by it. But inspiration is impermanent. You know, it, it can't last. And so then we, you know, if we're looking for inspiration all the time, we're going to be terribly disappointed. You know, and whatever, you go to this teacher or this religion or that meditation course and you get inspired and then you get dissolute. <laughs> if you know, if you're thinking that 
that if you're depending on the, the it's like sugar, you know, it gets you going, but it's not nourishing in the long run. You have to eat uh, organic food. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's it's like a, a good teacher, one who, who directs you towards enlightenment, is is not pointing to himself or herself. It's like pointing, getting you to observe yourself, because you learn. You know, you you have to live with yourself all the time. You know, in my life, you come and then you go, but but I have to live with me all the time. You know, and this is. <laughs> And you know, it's not not all that easy. I'm not that easy to live with. For, you know, the, but the uh, but the uh, and and that's why uh, you know, like an inspired teacher, it, it, it gets it creates maybe interest and faith. But then, but then you can't sustain that, you know, because teachers they. Sometimes they die, like Lumpo John died, <laughs> or they do something they shouldn't, and we lose. <laughs> you know, there's always scandals about meditation teachers and gurus and things. So uh, we, you know, we become disillusioned or disappointed. But the, uh, you know, this is. Where, where if you're directing at the right place, then you can even use that, you know. When you feel disillusioned with a teacher or disappointed, that's another condition in your mind. You know, so it's not about whether your teacher's perfect or never never lets you down or disappoint. It's about using, you know, directing your attention at what you can, <coughs> about what you can actually know now. You know, and so being disillusioned is like this. It's impermanent. And then, uh, it's not, you know, like justifying bad behavior, but even, (laughs) 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 but I mean, people do change and. That. And, but the, you know the important thing is to establish this confidence within your this awareness is what your refuge is that will never let you down if you use wisdom. Can you 
Yeah, because effort is like, you know, there's four efforts, so, you know, that we use. I mean, effort, like Sangmara Padana is uh, like effort, awareness here and now, you know, being aware uh, of the situation here and now. Then there's Padana effort to let go or abandon condition and then uh, Pawana Padana is cultivation of the path and then Anurakana Padana is a sustaining that so they all work together you know but it's, it's like four aspects of effort right effort <clears throat> sometimes you know and this is more intuitive than prescription-based, you know, like prescribing, right? Effort is pawana or anurakana or, you know, a particular thing, but it's more trusting yourself to in the particular time and place you're in. And it's, and it's not about, you know, like we sometimes use effort as a kind of willful effort. I've got to pay attention or... <clears throat> I really got to put a lot of effort into my meditation can be wrong effort, you know, because it's coming from a willful ideal of effort or force. You know, so it, it's like this is these are like these four efforts are more for reflective, you know, sometimes it's just awareness. Sometimes one needs to to put like cultivating this empty state is more like being more aware of it till you you have more sense of it continuity and, and can know it for certain to to sort self sustainingness for anurakana padana. Or, you know, the effort of when you find yourself obsessed with something, you know, you're you're caught up with some some obsession or emotional thing, and then uh, letting go, pahana padana, effort to just isn't it effort to destroy, but to abandon, let go of this, put down. Yeah, this is learning it just because you know you if you trust your awareness then you'll be more well wisdom then informs you. You can inform consciousness with wisdom. And this is like uh Lumpa Cha was always saying, informing conscious experience with wisdom. And that's like real bhavana, really cultivating it. You know, like the the Buddhist teachings, they're conventions, but they're always pointing. You know, they're they're directional signs. They're not an end in themselves. So it's learning to use those. You know, go in the direction they're pointing, which is always here. 
that's too ignorant like like we you know we're caught in the power of conditioning and habit and uh, greed hatred and delusion I mean this realm you know it's the 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 human form you know is a animal form it it runs on instinct and survival and and uh, procreation it's about surviving and procreating the species about eating and uh, you know I mean enough to to keep alive and and procreating the species and survival so it's you know this is our animal nature that we have just like any other animal and um, so then but then because we have a retentive memory you know like we can we have language and we and therefore we can remember things you know of the past so uh, and we retain memories so we create problems from the past, you know, like I can, uh, you know, tell people the story of when I was at, with Lung Po Cha in Wapapong, you know, one day, you know, I was in my kuti uh, in the monastery and and I was bored, you know, it was hot season and just so kind of lethargic and torporous and boring life. So I started thinking about something that happened to me 20 years before that made me very indignant. And so out of this torpor and lethargy, I got very indignant. And then, and then I thought, but there's nothing to do with the place I'm in. You know, it's not, nobody here has been unfair to me or anything. It's, about what happened 20 years before and none of those conditions are present except the memory in my mind they weren't in anyone else's mind so so just analyzing it I saw the the stupidity of how you know just out of boredom you know to feel indignant is a kind of is a powerful feeling you know either you know sexual fantasy will do it but we're celibate so you don't want to fool around with that one but, but the, uh, so righteous indignation is, is not an offense is it? but it's also very exciting you know and so I mean just like examining you know like these are asavas and impurities and tendencies of, of my uh, personality, my human condition, mammalian karma, you know, and but the the gift of our humanity lies in our ability to reflect on it. We're not just like like the animal world can't help like the cats at Amravati in England. You know, we try to get the cats to keep the five precepts. <laughs> And you know not to kill birds, and then, but we want them to kill rats. 
the cats get confused. <laughs> but they, you know, they because cats are supposed to kill. That's their nature. They can't reflect on killing. Like we have the same, isn't it? We want to kill, but we can actually observe the desire to kill. <clears throat> we have uh, sexual desire, you know, uh, but we can also observe it. You know, we, we're not, we can recognize it as a condition that's arisen in the present. We can see it. But if it's just uh, like an animal, it's, they're just caught in that desire, you know, and without being able to observe it. We can feel, uh, you know, anything, jealousy or fear. And, and fear is a kind of natural survival mechanism. You know, there's a lot to be afraid of in this realm. You know, you're, you're a rather delicate form. You know, a meteor might come and land on your head any moment. Or, uh, you know, a, a, a maniac might attack you with a knife. Uh, is there anything possible? And our bodies are quite soft and easily damaged. And then we can be hurt emotionally. People can, can make fun of us or intimidate us. This is a fear realm. And when you observe nature, you know, the natural, like how nature operates, you see that all animals are operating out of fear, survival. It's, uh, it's not a neurotic thing. It's part of the package of this, this karma, being human, or being a, a mammal, or being a, a separate entity on planet Earth where it's survival of the fittest. But we can reflect on that. So like, we can feel fear, but we can also know fear as, an, as a mental object. See, that's like mindfulness and wisdom. Then we can see fear not through, uh, you know, being, just being caught in it, but we actually have a perspective on it. Our relationship to fear then is knowing rather than grasping and following it or trying to suppress it you know trying to get rid of fear so how do they come to an end well that's what you have to find out really <laughs> <laughs> it all ends like Lumpa Cha you say the world arises and ceases here. It all ends here at any point. He's not pointing to himself either. It's a, the mind. I mean, it, it, you know, when you think about it, it, it seems impossible, you know, really. And um, that's why you can't use you know, thinking will take you so far, then you have to let it go. And, and it's like Bhattibhata, the practice, the bhavana side. It's like Ajahn Chah is always emphasizing bhavana. And because in Thailand, where, where you have, you know, it's a, a, a national religion. Every, almost all Thais are Buddhist, you know, or culturally so. You know, it's a part of their culture and their identity as ties so it's and even as Theravada Buddhism they don't even have very much anything else but um, a lot of it is ceremonial and 
and uh, you know religion any religion kind of gets into just perfunctory ceremonial patterns or scriptural studies or things like that and uh, where, where Ajahn Chah you see his, his brilliance was that he he was emphasizing Bhattibhata all the time he practiced it this is what he was telling me all the time you know he, he said 20% Bariyat you know like you, need only, you don't need to know the whole scripture just like the Four Noble Truths is really enough and then then practice Bhattibhata is to to put it make it work inside here you know and then then the bhati weight the result of that practice is you have insight into reality into dhamma so it, it's you know it's taking something so ordinary like suffering and and then using that which is common to all of us and, and it'll take you to non-suffering, take you to the deathless reality. You know, it's, it's, I mean, but when you try to think about it, then you, you will, you get caught up in doubt and, and about whether it really is true or is Ajahn Sumaya telling us the truth or maybe he's crazy, maybe I'm lost in a delusion or something. But you know, it's but that's the thinking process, and and then if you, you know, if you put it to practice, then you'll find you'll see yourself. You know, it's not a matter of of, of uh, you know that you can't realize yourself. It's not you know it's you're taking something so common and using it rather than something very special like. Some people have special intellectual abilities or special qualities that that we in, that many of us don't have, and we think, you know, it's because I'm not special that I can't really do it. That's still a wrong view, you see. You know, so it's it, it's a teaching for you know deva manusa, like devas and and human. Well, I'm definitely not a deva. <laughs> but it certainly, you know, I certainly found it very helpful as a human. <laughs> because, because in my life, too, there hasn't, you know, I've not, I don't feel I've been abused or persecuted, particularly uh, outside. You know, I'm a good family and, you know, opportunities and, well, it's not that I've I've had a difficult life. It's just I created all my suffering around my thinking, you know, negative thinking, critical thinking. It was all, you know, delusions in my mind. Yes. So if you find yourself in, in the swamp of the delusion that you're working on and you're waking up at three in the morning with your mind running around in a circle is a, a, and you found let's call it a Dharma pill for you <laughs> if you wake up in the middle of the night 
at three o'clock working on your problems. What do you do? What would you do? <laughs> well, this is where I say, trust yourself to observe. You know, it's not a matter of doing anything, observing. Like waking up, you know, is a good time because just be observant of the mental state you're in or whether you're sleepy or tired or bright or worried or whatever and just be patient with that you know acknowledge it as as in terms of condition changing rather than as some problem of yours (coughs) yeah no, we can all create problems about ourselves. Yeah, I'm really good at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so am I. <laughs>